In your bulletins, you have a, a handout, which I will refer to a little later. Follow the leader. It's a common children's game. The idea is simple. One person is designated as the leader, and he or she leads a line of followers who all do the same thing as the leader. And often the one who follows the best gets to be the leader next. In that way, everyone gets practice at being a follower, and many become leaders as well. Now, often the attitude of the child who is the leader determines how enjoyable the game is going to be. So will the leader do things that offer a bit of challenge, but which are still doable? Or will the leader take advantage of certain unique skills, like hopping up and down on one foot for 10 times in order to get people to drop out quickly? And followers are also important. They can do their best to follow happily, try their best. Or they can get mad when it gets hard and whine and complain and leave in a huff. Follow the leader. Follow the leader is a simplified version of our lives as adults as well. As we live our ordinary lives in marriages and families and communities and in a complex society, all of us are followers at some point. And most of us also get a chance to be leaders in some aspect of our lives. All of us who have been parents are leaders of our children. We may be a team leader on a job. We may lead out in church activities, whether it's in worship and music, in a committee, in a church work day, or simply deciding where the salads go on the fellowship meal table. To be a leader means that other persons follow you in doing a task that you can't do by yourself. But how do you get others to follow? How do you become a true leader who gets things done, gets the things done that God wants done? The Gospel of Mark tells the story of how Jesus became a leader one who literally, physically led a group of followers or disciples on what Mark calls the way. And Jesus' invitation was simple. Follow me. And following him meant joining him on the way. The way is a key concept in the Gospel of Mark. It has both a physical component, it was a dusty road, but it also had a spiritual component. Jesus led his followers along a physical path from Caesarea Philippi and Mount Hermon in the northern part of, 
of Israel down through the Jordan Valley and then up again to the capital city of Jerusalem. But along the way, Jesus also taught about a spiritual way, a spiritual path that he was following. He was following his heavenly father. So Jesus not only taught about the way, but in the end, he modeled it. This was the way of the cross, that he was also calling his followers to take. It was the way for them to become leaders of others. But the style of leadership was completely different from what they were used to. And Jesus found it very hard to get through to his followers. So let's start at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. Just a very brief overview. In the first eight chapters, we see Jesus carrying out a ministry of healing and teaching. His ministry is both a demonstration and an explanation of God's coming to lead Israel in a new day of salvation. And Jesus proclaimed that reality in the political language of his day. Kingdom. Kingdom of God. And he attracted some followers who were excited about this revolutionary message of a kingdom of God. Could this be, they asked themselves, the great king and leader that generations in Israel had one longed for? Could this be the Messiah, the king anointed by God in the tradition of King David? And so toward the end of chapter 8, we reach a climax. By this time, Jesus and his motley crew of disciples were quite a distance north from the capital city of Jerusalem. He was even some distance north from his home area of Galilee. He was in a region of villages around a city named for the supreme leader of the Roman world, Caesar, an area called Caesarea Philippi. And in that context, Jesus was ready to ask his followers a crucial question. So Mark says, on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him. They answered him with some of the godly figures from the past. John the Baptist. Others said, Elijah. Famous Old Testament prophet. Others, one of the prophets. And so then, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, ever the impulsive spokesperson, answered him, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You're the anointed one of Israel. Wow, there we have it. The confession that Jesus 
is the promised Messiah, the one to take over the throne of David, the one who is the ultimate supreme leader lurking in the wilderness of the hated Caesar's territory, but come to restore God's rule in the world through Israel. Now, I can imagine, you know, suddenly uh, what they've all been thinking is now out in the open. Hey, guys, this is exciting. What do we do now? I imagine that they're waiting for marching orders to build their revolutionary movement as they march down the way towards the capital city of Jerusalem. And so if we're reading Mark's story here for the first time, we're expecting that this is the start of a victory march on the way. It's the start of Jesus taking control as the supreme leader and lining up all his troops behind him in a climactic victory procession to the capital city. But from that climactic moment in the Gospel of Mark, it doesn't quite work out like that. True, they're going to be traveling on the way toward Jerusalem. And on the way, physically speaking, Jesus will be teaching about the way, spiritually speaking, about the kingdom of God. But the rest will not be quite what they are expecting. So it brings up the question, what does it mean then to be the Messiah, the supreme leader, the son of God? Peter has proclaimed it. Jesus has not denied it. But right away, Jesus does something very puzzling. Mark 8.30, he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Now imagine, what politician in his right mind says, I'm the big leader, I'm the one you're looking for, I have all the answers, you've discovered the secret of this campaign, but you can't tell anyone. And so the next three chapters give the answer to those questions that are in the disciples' minds. Why can't we tell anyone? What does it mean to be, be the Messiah? What does it mean to be a leader? And for the disciples, it asks the question, how will you follow me, Jesus says, into true leadership? So, on your handout, you have a chart. And Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus tries three times to get across the message. Each time begins with a prophetic word. And the word is essentially, yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem, and here's what's going to happen. And then what follows is a misunderstanding of the prophetic word by the disciples. 
a misunderstanding that's based on the common worldly notions of leadership. And that misunderstanding leads then to more teaching by Jesus on the real meaning of leadership in the kingdom of God. So let's look at each of these three episodes, and we'll spend a little more time on the last one, but we have to kind of get the, pro, uh, the projection here. The first prophetic word starts right after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark 8.31. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, first of all, Jesus doesn't use the word Messiah. He uses the term Son of Man. It's another way that the Old Testament talked about this person who is coming, but it wasn't the common way. It didn't have all the baggage that Messiah had. But, he says, the Son of Man will undergo great suffering. Well, that's a little puzzling. Maybe possible, you know. Leaders sometimes have to suffer before they get their great conquest and victory. Hmm. And then he says, he will be rejected. Well, what's this? Rejected by Israel's leaders who are supposed to be longing for and wanting and welcoming the Messiah? But then Jesus really goes over the top. The Son of Man will be killed. And it's so startling that they barely hear the part about after three days rise again. And, and Mark adds in verse 32, he said this quite openly. Well, Peter again, impulsive Peter, jumped into action, took him aside, began to rebuke him, he says, to scold him. Now imagine the scene here. Jesus has said something so outrageous that Peter, the disciple, the follower, takes his teacher aside and scolds him. Tells him he's wrong. Vigorously correcting him. This can't happen. And Jesus puts a stop to that line of thinking pretty quickly. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. This line of thinking belongs to the enemy of God, not to the kingdom of God. Jesus says straight out, you are setting your mind not on divine things, 
things of God, but on human things, the way the world does it. And so here's the first clue that God's way of leadership is far different from the way of the ungodly world. So then Jesus goes into his first teaching. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Mark 8, 34. Now imagine, I mean, this is mind-boggling if you think about it from the perspective of the first disciples. The most excruciating way to lose one's life to the most powerful enemy the world had at that point somehow becomes a model for being the Messiah? How can that be? But Peter is following a worldly way of being a leader. It is the way of power. It is the way of self-aggrandizement. I am all-powerful. I can make it happen. I'm the answer you're looking for. But Jesus says he is embarking on the way of the cross, of self-denial rather than self-aggrandizement, of suffering, not the way of seizing violent power. Well, puzzled as those disciples were, they nevertheless continue to physically follow Jesus as he heads south to Jerusalem. So Mark 9.30 says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. Now Galilee is Jesus' home territory. So he's back in home territory. Surely here he can proclaim that he is the Messiah. He can build up his conquering army. But what does it say? Mark tells us he did not want anyone to know it. He still has some teaching to do of his disciples on the way. And so we get to prophetic word number two. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. This is Jesus' second prophetic announcement of his death. Now this time, he's not just rejected like the first time. He is to be betrayed. The Son of Man the divinely appointed leader is to be betrayed into human hands. God allows God's work to be betrayed into human hands. And it's a betrayal that will lead to his death. Well, again, how do you put this all together? Well, after the tongue lashing Peter received up north, no one was going to contradict Jesus this time. So verse 32 says, but they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. 
They were afraid to ask him. Even though they were puzzled by Jesus' words, eh, they humored him, I guess. They were in denial. They still felt sure that they were on some kind of triumphant kingly march to, to greatness. And so as they headed home to the home base in Capernaum, they were arguing along the way, huh, as to which of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Can you imagine? They had visions of fame and prestige, of being important. And when Jesus calls out their petty little arguments, they shut up. They fall silent. So Jesus uses the opportunity to give them his second lesson on leadership. Jesus turns their wanting to be first and greatest upside down. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all. In fact, must be the servant of all. And that word for servant is the word used for like an attendant or a waiter. You know, somebody who stands beside the person who is great and the guy says, go get me my water or go get me my drink and uh, go get me a fan. Uh, And they run and do it. They were completely in a service to the other person. This was the leader, Jesus says. But Jesus goes even farther than that. He calls in a child, someone with even less standing than a servant. Rather than trying to be first and get the most important people to follow your your movement, your leadership, you should simply welcome a child. A child can't do anything for your great plans. But how you treat a child, someone with no standing to make you appear greater, to make you appear important, will determine your leadership in the kingdom of God. So instead of the way of fame and power and privilege, leaders are to model the way of humility and service. Jesus says, instead of self-importance, you simply welcome anyone regardless of their status. You welcome even a child. And later in chapter 10, Jesus reinforces the message when he says, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. And truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never see it. Humility. And then to further reinforce the point, he tells a a certain young man who comes and uh, in his riches uh, wants to know what he's lacking to get eternal life. And Jesus says, well, in the end, follow me. And that means for you, give up your riches. And notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, deposit your money in my messianic bank account. He says, he doesn't say, go buy your way into 
influence and power and luxury. He says, give it to the poor. Give it to the poor. So finally then we come to the third prophetic word, the passage that Tim read for us this morning. And in verse 32 of chapter 10, they were on the road, and again, this is the same phrase in the original language as on the way. They were on the way going up to Jerusalem. Now, I understand the geography in that region, that it was literally uphill. And now Jesus was walking ahead of them. Well, it's obvious they're getting a little nervous by now. There may be a crowd, but no way is this going to be a grand army that's going to march into the capital city. And, you know, Jesus is seemingly making as many enemies as friends. This way of self-denial and humility and welcoming children that's not going to get them very far in the capital city. But Jesus was very clearly walking ahead of them. He was the leader leading on the way. And Mark says, they were amazed. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting word. It can mean astonished, dumbfounded, even terrified, perhaps. So the disciples were, were amazed. Well, what's, I mean, he's, he's, still, he's still going. And those who followed, presumably, you know, some of the others who are kind of tagging along, they were afraid. Now, that's the word that we use for phobia. They had a phobia. So again, he takes his disciples aside. He took the 12 aside, began to tell them what was going to happen. And Jesus confirmed their direction. Yes, we are going up to Jerusalem. And his prophetic word is now even stronger than ever. It's not just rejected like the first one or betrayed, like the second one, now the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. The one who is supposed to be the leader of this godly movement against all the forces of evil is going to be put under the power of those evil forces. And those forces are religious forces, the chief priests and the scribes, and they are political forces, what Mark calls the Gentiles. In other words, the worldly rulers, the powers of this world. And notice that it's the religious forces that will condemn him to death. And it was the political forces that will carry out the death sentence. Complete with utter humiliation, a mocking, spitting, 
flogging and then killing him on the cross, the most excruciating way to die that they had devised. But the disciples still don't get it. So we get misunderstanding number three. They're still thinking of Jesus' march to Jerusalem as this standard political power march with armies and fighting and conquering Rome and, and then sitting on a glorious throne and enjoying it. And so two of them, brothers James and John, make a request ahead of time. They want to get the, the leg up on the, the situation. They want to get their power in the new kingdom. One on the right, one on the left. Power positions. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And so again, instead of this position and power, Jesus speaks in terms of suffering and death. The cup is the cup of suffering. It's, it's the same image that he uses in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus tells the Father, please remove this cup from me. I don't want to suffer. And the baptism is not the pouring out of water now, but it's the pouring out of blood. Again, another image for his death. And they very quickly and glibly say, oh, we can do it. We're able. And Jesus sadly says to them, well, yeah, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will indeed suffer for my sake. But then Jesus calls together the disciples once again to deal with the underlying issue of their request for greatness. What kind of leader is this Messiah, after all? Why does he keep speaking of suffering and death? The disciples are still walking in the way of the world. It's the way of position and privilege. It's the way of lordship a coercive political power to make others follow what I want them to do. And Jesus called them together and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles, in other words, among the worldly rulers, those who they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. Worldly power is the power of rules and laws and force. And taken to the extreme, it is ultimately the power of death itself over the other person. Lords, tyrants, dictators. This is the description of what worldly leadership ends up looking like. 
But Jesus continues, it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. There's that word again. The common attendant. The one who meets the needs of the other. But then he goes one step farther. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And here's a different word. The word slave is a stronger word. It's not just an attendant, but it's the one who is actually the property of the master. Who has no other function in life but to do the master's bidding. What does it mean for a follower of Jesus, the one who would be the leader in the Messiah movement, to actually be the slave of all? Jesus says, leadership in my movement is not the way of privilege and position, of lordship and coercion, but rather the way of service and devotion, of self-giving love to the other person. And Jesus again refuses to use the term Messiah for all the baggage that it held in their power-hungry world. And he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We've seen now three prophetic words with one message. The way of leadership is the way of the cross. And it obviously generates misunderstandings. We've seen three misunderstandings. Unfortunately, misunderstandings which persist even to our day. So we see power as the way to go. Self-aggrandizement to say, I have the answers. I can make it happen. We've seen the way of fame and prestige, of self-importance. We've seen the way of privilege and position. If I can just get the... The, the right levers here, the prime minister, the one at the right hand, the coercive power of worldly lordship. And then we've seen three additional teachings about the way of the cross. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of childlike humility. It's the way of loving, outpouring service, even unto death. If these are not just the words of Jesus, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. And it's interesting that right at the end of chapter 10, a blind beggar actually confesses, you're the son of David. Son of David, have mercy on me. Well, that's, that's a messianic, that's a Messiah title. 
And yes, Jesus does march into Jerusalem in chapter 11, triumphant with palm branches of victory, but with a whole lot of differences. And by Friday afternoon, there is Jesus, just as he prophesied, rejected, betrayed, handed over for execution. This style of leadership, this style of following the leader, that of a loving, self-giving servant, looks like foolishness to the world. And frankly, it still looks like foolishness to many of us. The world still admires the one who can manipulate the levers of power, make things happen, no matter who gets stepped on in the process. And even folks who call themselves Christians will advocate for the use of political power to form a law to make people, to force people to do the right thing, rather than the self-sacrificing work of humble service that will draw people, even as Jesus is lifted up into a loving community where they will want to do the right thing. Yes, we still all play follow the leader, don't we? But whose leadership are we following? And when we find ourselves at the head of the line, what kind of leaders are we going to be with the power that we have been given? Do we still follow the world's definition of victory by casting our lot with the power structures of this world? Or do we really, truly believe that the way of the cross reveals the true power of the God of the whole universe, the power that was revealed when Jesus arose from the dead? May we indeed follow the leader, follow this Jesus who has shown us the true definition of the Messiah, the supreme leader, the Lord of all, forever and ever.